invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Ruth once again. Ruth, it's on page 224 in uh, your pew Bible if you're using that uh, this morning. And this morning we're going to see just an ordinary redemption. uh, God saving people uh, in very ordinary ways. Uh, When I was in a seminary for the latter part of my time in seminary, a little bit afterwards, I was a hospice chaplain. Uh, By far the hardest job that I've ever had to do, uh, sitting with people and ministering to people as they were dying, many of whom wanted nothing to do uh, with Christ or wanted nothing to hear about it, uh, hear about Christ. Uh, One of the things that I would do is that I would, uh, because of the nature of hospice uh, work uh, and the way that that we have um, Medicaid and Medicare for folks, uh, they have an allowance for hospice uh, in uh, those types of insurance And so many of the people that were in our services were on Medicaid. And so I went into some of the poorest areas of of Jackson, Mississippi, uh, some of the roughest areas. uh, And I met some of the most amazing people uh, in those areas. Uh, One of them was uh, the Gregory family. Uh, About uh, mid-50s, Mr. Gregory was, um, he didn't seem to have anything wrong with him. He wasn't the one that was on our service. His wife was. Uh, but you could tell that there was something just a little bit off uh, with him. Uh, and uh, he was very pleasant, very kind. He was a very, very large man. He was about 6'4", weighed about 300 pounds, but was kind and gentle. Uh, his wife, Miss Gregory, was um, she was on our services. She had had cervical cancer and was dying of cervical cancer and had it for years and years and years. And uh, because they didn't have a lot of money, they were living in government housing. Uh, she was suffering Uh, with uh, this cancer and uh, with not receiving very much treatment. So I would go there, and most of my time was spent, actually, in marriage counseling uh, between the two of them uh, because Mr. Gregory didn't realize that his wife was in a great deal of pain and couldn't make him breakfast in the morning. Uh, And she didn't realize why, or she didn't understand why he couldn't understand. There was a a great amount of uh, uh, problems there Uh, in the in the midst of my time of counseling with them and meeting with them, this delightful couple that comes out that over the years, due to their poverty, she had she was a prostitute. Uh, and that, um, that she had been a prostitute and that her husband was the one uh, that was putting her on the streets. Um, it was a difficult situation and one uh, that I was ill-prepared to deal with and ill-prepared to give counsel to. One of the things that I want to tell you about this family is that they were deep, deep believers in Christ. Deep, deep believers in Christ. That they had a faith that was incredible. And I would meet with them and delight to talk with them about Jesus. At various times I would go into the the more wealthy areas of Jackson and the more wealthy areas uh, where people were affluent and people who didn't have great need, who had had very uh, easy lives, who had not suffered very much, and they didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Now, that is a reminder to us that even in the lives of individuals that we look at and might say, well, they can't possibly have anything to do with Christ, and they may not fit into, uh, into our view of what Christians are, that in fact God works in extraordinary ways, and ordinary people with ordinary lives. We're going to see in this passage today that there is just a, a basic business transaction that's, that's happening here. And God uses just a simple business transaction 
Not just for the salvation and the well-being of Naomi and Ruth, but for your salvation as well. Because you would not be here were it not for a very common business transaction. Let me, let me uh, read this to you. We're going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Chapter 4, 1 through 12. This is God's good and kind word to you today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said to him, Turn, to, turn aside, um, friend. Now, I just want to stop right there real quick. Your translation probably says friend. Most translations say friend. Um, that is not the word for friend. Um, translators don't know what to do with the words that are here. Everywhere else in the Bible, it's translated such and such. Let me read it like that. Um, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came, uh, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside such and such, sit down here. It'll be clear why I'm reading it that way in a minute. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for, for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witness this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahalon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamor bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us. Understand this word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this word. We thank you for uh, the beauty in it of you redeeming a people for yourself, for loving one who is unlovable, and for making us your own. Father, we pray that we would see the glory, the glory of Jesus in his gospel today. In Christ's name, amen. 
Uh, so first of all, in this passage, we see a very common ceremony. You're told in verse 7, this was the custom in former times. And really, this whole chapter is, is just a very customary way of doing things. Boaz, uh, in the previous chapter, told uh, Ruth he was going to marry her. But there was a, a redeemer that was closer, one that had the first right of refusal. And so Boaz had to make sure everything was done properly. So he gathers with the elders at the gate of the city. That's how business was done. That's how judicial things were decided. They would gather at the gate of the city with the elders, um, and, and that's what they would do. And so in this, in verses 1 through 6, there's kind of this proceeding. There's this musical chairs things that happen. That happen. Boaz is looking at one guy and says, okay, now you sit here. Okay, now I'm going to sit over here, and, and you sit over there. Um, and he kind of situates everyone just right. And what we see is that this is a, a real estate deal. We haven't heard about this real estate deal up to this point. That shouldn't give us much, uh, much of a problem. Apparently, Naomi is looking for someone to buy her field or to to uh, purchase the right to use it. Uh, And then whoever kind of rents this from Naomi for the time uh, can use the field. And then when Naomi dies, all of the rights of this field goes to that person. So this is a a pretty lucrative business, uh, a real estate deal. Uh, And that's how Boaz frames this. And Boaz is incredibly shrewd in how he does this. Uh, He says... uh, Look, there's this field guy that if you want to buy this field, you can buy it. It's, it's yours first. <clears throat> and so this man says, well, I mean, he knows how you build wealth. Everyone knows how you build wealth, right? You buy real estate. That's the best way to do it. So this man hears, well, there's this land that I can buy. Well, yeah, I'm going to buy some land. And so he says, yes, absolutely, I'll buy it. And then once he says that, Ruth says, oh, and... And by the way, along with the land is this woman, Ruth. She's part of the land deal. Uh, She was the wife of Malon. And, you know, he died. And because he died, whoever uh, owns this field has to then marry Ruth so that she can raise children for Malon's line and his family. Well, of course, so you see what's happening. Ruth Ruth has, uh, or Boaz has, you know, put his line out there, he's been fishing this man, and then the man grabs the, the hook, and then what do you have to do? You have to pull back on it, and he sets the hook, and that's exactly what's happening. He has set this man up, he is hooked, he has to make a decision. This is wise, this is shrewd. And what does this man say? Once he, once he hears that, that he has to marry Ruth as well, he goes, well, he says, wait a second, he says, I can't redeem this for myself. Um, he says... In verse 6, for uh, I, lest I impair my own inheritance. I can't do it. And what you see from this is what he's saying there is, I have my own name to worry about. I have my own inheritance. I have my own lineage. And he says, if I marry this woman, then, then anything that is mine then becomes hers. And any children that I have really aren't mine. This is the way that the law was written. They then all of a sudden are her family. He says, wait, I have my own name, my own inheritance to worry about. His concern is one of self-protection. His concern is one of making a name for himself. And he doesn't want to take on the greater financial burden of taking care of Ruth and Naomi and any children that would come from this marriage. Well, I think you can understand this, right? If you were in this situation, wouldn't you say, wait a second, wait a second, I didn't sign up for all this. 
This isn't my burden. I shouldn't have to do these things. Why should you hurt your family's name for other people? That's what's happening here. Well, let me just encourage you to think about it in this way, that this man is thinking about things in a small, petty, and faithless way. He's saying that my family is my family, and it's up to me to protect and provide for my family, and it's up for me to make my it's up to me to make myself great. He's worried about his image. He's worried about his family. He's worried about taking care of himself. That is a faithless way to look at things. And in the irony of this, this is beautiful irony, he's concerned about his name. But he is not named in this section. Look up again where I said friend in verse 1. Or such and such. That is in Hebrew. This is how you say what's said there. Poloni alimony. Poloni alimony. And you say, well, poloni alimony. What, what's that? What? Well, it doesn't mean anything. It's, it's whenever you want to say something that doesn't mean anything, you say poloni alimony. Poloni alimony. It's the same way that we would say Joe Schmo. Or John Doe. It's to give somebody a name without giving them a name. And the irony is this man is concerned about making himself a name. And he does not receive a name in this passage. So let me ask you. Are you concerned about making a name for yourself? Are you concerned about your family's name? And building yourself and your children and your lineage up? Because if you are... If that is your concern in this life, then in this passage we are being told that God will not give you a name. That your name will not go forward. Just like this man who was unfaithful, he had the right to carry on the line of someone else and he refused it because he was worried about himself. Now how do you receive a name? Well, that's what comes next. And so the next section we see a costly commitment. Boaz commits in a couple different ways. We've already seen this over and over and over that Boaz is a man who is committed. He is faithful to the Lord. He understands who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. And because of that, he is a man who is very faithful. And so the first thing that Boaz does is he commits to Naomi's dead family. Look at this in verse um, verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witness this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. You see, if you remember back from the, from the very first sermon, Elimelech died in weakness in Moab. And when you die in a foreign country, your name, for the most part, is stricken from the record of the Israelite people. You die in a foreign place. You die outside the boundaries of Israel. Therefore, you're not part of them. And then what about Kilion and Malon, who are, whose names mean weakness and frailty? People that the world looks at and says, you do not deserve a name. You do not deserve to continue your line. They're stricken in their name, and yet Boaz names them. Uh, I read an article this week about Iceland, and the title of the article was, Iceland Seeks to Eradicate Down Syndrome. That Iceland is doing everything that they can to, in this noble cause of making sure that no one is ever born with Down syndrome. 
Uh, and, and that sounds so noble. It sounds so amazing that Eisen would do these things, except whenever you begin to read the article, what you realize is they test women who are pregnant, and they test to see if their child has in utero Down syndrome. And if that child shows any signs, if the test comes back positive, they abort that child because they say that child does not deserve to have a name. Now, you need to recognize that that, uh, that um, test that they use, as horrible as it is, and you say, well, well, you know, for them to abort even children with Down syndrome, it's only about 25% effective. It only comes back about 25% of the time saying or, or with, with, with that kind of accuracy. So all of these children are being aborted just so Iceland can claim to eliminate Down syndrome. And then what they're further doing is those that already have Down syndrome in Iceland, they're withholding care from them. Because Iceland, and it's not just Iceland, even in the United States, there are people today who with very loud voices are saying anyone with special needs and disability, anyone who is different, anyone who can't give back in the way that we think they should give back to society is not worthy or worth having a name. And so they seek to remove those people from the earth. And I want you to understand this, that God sees fit to name the unnameable. God sees fit to elevate those that the world despises. Boaz here names Elimelech so that thousands of years later we are praising this man and his children, frailty and weakness We are elevating them, and Boaz says we need to remember these names. The man who sought a name for himself was not remembered, but the ones who did not are elevated. Also, Boaz commits to Ruth. Look in verse uh, verse 10. Also, Ruth the Moabite, over and over and over. Ruth is not just Ruth. She's Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. And the thing that we're to see here is that Ruth was not the one that Jewish men should want to marry. She was a foreigner. She was an outsider. Moabites had darker skin. And the darker the skin, the less you were the standard of beauty in that day as well. She was also older than most women that are getting married. And therefore, because she had been married previously and had no children, she was probably barren. And yet, Boaz commits to her and he says, I'm going to love her. He says, let it be known that she is going to be my wife and I'm going to perpetuate the name of Malon from here on forth and for Ruth. Understand that Boaz commits himself to one that the world would have rejected. He would have had racially mixed children. He would have been himself ceremonially unclean because he was married to a Moabite woman. He would have said and taken on himself um, the social pariahness of being married to this woman. And he commits himself. Why does he do it? He doesn't do it for his sake. He does it for her sake. Boaz commits himself to Naomi's family. He gives up his rights for her. And, And here, once again, Boaz commits himself to Ruth. He commits and sacrifices for her well-being. Do you want a name? Do you want people to remember your name? Absolutely. Everybody does. That's a good thing to want. Well, here's how you get your name remembered. 
Boaz knows the story of Yahweh's covenantal love. He knows how much he himself, the undesirable Boaz, has been loved by God. And so he marries himself and commits himself to one the world despises. And he raises up those that the world pushes down. If we realize how much we've been loved by Jesus Christ and in Jesus, then we're going to love the way that Boaz did. Love sacrificially, love giving Love to the point of giving up all of ourselves. Finally, we see here a covenantal claim in verses uh, 11 and 12. Uh, When all things are are done and finished, the elders, after this business transaction, pray for the success of this transaction. And it's a prayer of blessing. They said, we are a witness, and then may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. And then later on, they names Tamar. Uh, three women are named here. Now you can go back, and I encourage you to go back, write down the references here of Rachel and Leah, and read Genesis 29 and 30. Um, because if you think your family is at all messed up, you need to go back and read the tale of Rachel and Leah, two sisters married to one man who are fighting with each other because Leah is, is uh, having children and Rachel is not. And all of the things that Rachel does, the disgusting things that Rachel does to get back at her sister Leah. And then all of the things that Leah does to get back at her sister Rachel and how terrible this story is. It will make any mess in your family Look like a Hallmark special. I'm telling you, your family is nothing compared to how bad Leah and Rachel are. And then and then Genesis 38 with Judah and Tamar. If you think Rachel and Leah is bad, wait till you read Genesis 38 and the story of Tamar, who disguises herself as a prostitute so that she can have an illicit affair with her father-in-law so that she can have children. These stories are meant to remind us of something. In both cases where women do things that are wrong, God blesses them. In spite of their faithlessness, God is faithful. And so these men pray, may your family be like Rachel and Leah. May this woman be like Rachel and Leah and Tamar. It's a covenantal prayer. We need to pray this way. Because what they're saying is, we pray that the Lord would bless what we don't think he's going to bless. Your marriage to a Moabite woman, your marriage to someone that the world despises and rejects, We pray that the Lord would bless even this. We pray that the Lord would do what we don't expect, but that what he always does, that he would keep his promise. And what's amazing in this, um, Tamar was a Canaanite woman. Tamar was not a Jewish woman. She was a Canaanite woman. She worshipped other gods until she she was married uh, to Judah's son. And then... She has a child. What's his name? Perez. And the people pray that she would have, that Ruth and the children that would come from Ruth would be like the family of Perez. It was a mixed race family. It was 
Not a family that met the criteria for what most Jewish people thought they should be. And he uses the bitter rivalry of sisters to prosper a nation. If those sisters had not been so angry at each other, the Jewish nation would not be there. So have you noticed this? Now, this is for the Christians that are in the room. Only for the Christians. Have you noticed that the hard things in life, that the things are the most difficult, and the things that tend to be the things that are the most shameful for us, are the trophies of God's grace, where in your weakness he shows forth his strength more than anything else. This is just for the Christians, not for those of you that are pretending to be Christians, not for those of you that are trying your best to be good. This word isn't for you. This is for those of you who have recognized that you are like Ruth, that you are like Tamar, that you are like Rachel and Leah, that You're disgusting and gross and shameful and there's nothing good in you. And yet God is pleased to work in your life. Because we learn in this that God's covenantal love for his people will not be stopped. God is faithful to his people in spite of our faithlessness. Now in this, I want to conclude in this way, just as a reminder. It's a reminder to us to not despise the things that the Lord loves. Don't despise the things that the Lord loves. We tend to look at the world and look at prostitutes and we look at women who have abortions and people who are in affairs and various things and say those people are outside of the ability of God to redeem them. And God says over and over and over, just you watch and see the way that I'm going to transform people's lives and what you think I can't do it. You and I need to be people of mercy and grace as well. And we need to pray the way that these men pray. Lord, I can't see how you're going to use uh, these people. I can't see the way you're going to do it. Lord, give me the ability to be gracious and kind. And then to love the ones that the world despises. Because you need to understand that you are the one that is despised. You are the one that deserves the wrath of God. You are the one that should not receive a name. But because Jesus Christ on the cross had his name removed, his name struck out from the book of life, you have a name in Christ. And your name has been written in the book of life for eternity, forever and ever and ever. Boaz is a type of Christ that points us to the better redeemer, to the one who looks at at whole communities of people and says, you're gross and disgusting, you're not beautiful, but I'm going to love you and make you beautiful. It's not just communities. He looks at you and me individually and says, you do not deserve it, but I will give you my grace. Boaz looks at Ruth and says, I'm going to love you even though you don't deserve it. And Jesus looks at us and says, I'm going to love you even though you don't deserve it. It's good news for us today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this word. We pray that we would hear it and understand it, that we would see that we have a name in Christ through faith in him. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us to be men and women who are like Boaz and Ruth, who are humble, uh, who are clear who we are in Christ, 
who were then emboldened to love sacrificially the way that you have loved us through your Son. We pray these things in Christ's name.